If you guys would turn to Mark chapter 8, um, in verse 34 to 38, we're going to look there in just a moment. Um, and like I said, I feel the honor, the privilege, also just feel humbled to be able to look at this passage today because uh, it is alongside of the passage we looked at last week, um, a kind of central reality of now the identity of Jesus, but also the identity of us as his followers for those of us that are already following him. And so uh, it is thankfully not pressure on me, but it is certainly a lot of pressure in this passage to understand how important it is for us. Um, if you haven't been around for a while, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going through a series that looks at the identity of who Jesus is. And through that, we got to a question last week where Jesus asked his disciples, what's the word on the street? What, who do people say that I am? And people, Peter came back to him and said, basically, like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. People are saying you're all sorts of things, but this is what we say. And Jesus wants to know not only from them, but from everyone, who do you say that Jesus is? The identity of Jesus is of the utmost importance. But right after that, really, and what we're going to look at today is that your identity and my identity as followers of Christ follows right out of it and is equally as important to understand how we actually live for this Jesus, if he is who he says he is. And so we're going to look at that today. Um, I want to introduce this a little bit different today and ask you a couple questions. I sometimes like to ask examining type questions of myself about my heart. And, and uh, I'm preaching to myself here, by the way, and preaching to my own needs. But uh, as I ask this question of myself this week, I want to ask it of you. Um, and that is, what do you need to be happy in life? Okay, I know it's a simple question. It's not uh, profound per se, but like, what do you think right now, at this moment, you need in your life to be happy? That is a question that things will no doubt pop into your head, and you're thinking like, what do you mean exactly? What realm of life? Well, let me give you some examples, okay? So uh, I'm going to break this down for you a little bit. Maybe you think you need a vacation, right? We could all use another one of those. Um, Vacation, BSU season tickets, who wants those, right? That could be fulfilling for you to go watch them. Football, basketball, doesn't really matter. Um, maybe you need, think you need a job that you actually like. Um, your dream home, a healthy body. Maybe some of you that have aches and pains or disabilities, you definitely would feel that. Uh, maybe you think you need a soulmate, right? We have a lot of college-age people here, uh, and they're looking for their soulmate, so you guys should connect. Um, but maybe you think that's your... Your need. I love when church plays matchmaker, by the way. Just a side note. Um, maybe you think you need an academic or sports scholarship. I was just, I've been coaching for a while now and, and just watching people with their dreams of getting a D1 scholarship. It's just pretty intense. Uh, financial security, a strong country, a good family, respect from people, fun and adventure in life, friends, or just a really good meal out, right? Wouldn't you like to go out for a night on the town, right? So maybe, guys, you took your wife out for Valentine's Day. I hope you did. hope you did. Anyway, those are some things that you think possibly could make you happy. You'll have your own things popping through your mind right now. Um, and I want to ask this now in a different way. Remember, this is just kind of like investigative questions to start us out this morning. The second way I'd say it is this. What means so much to you that it's worth dying for? 
Okay, that's a little more stark, a little more real. What means so much to you that it's worth dying for? Maybe for some of us, like, nothing. That sounds too intense. Uh, maybe it's like my wife, my kids, my family, my country, something of that effect you'd be willing to die for. Um, it's not really normal for us. The first question, it's normal. We wake up like, hey, what's going to make me happy today? This, the second question is not that normal. We don't wake up and say, hey, what am I going to die for today? What am I going to give my life for today? But part of what I'm, the reason I'm asking these questions as we start out and get into our text is this, that I believe that that second question, though a little more stark and in your face, is the reality of the first question, that what you are willing to pursue for happiness is what you would be willing to die for. In fact, you're doing that every single day already. You're dying for it. Your life is being spent for those things. And so that kind of reveals our identity a little bit about what we spend our passions on, live for, find happiness in, and really give ourselves to sacrificially. And I want to go to today a very direct passage that Jesus talks about, his own calling to the disciples, and he is going to call us to do exactly what we just said. He's going to call us to be willing to die for himself. So let's read that. Uh, this passage is known as the cost of discipleship, and we're going to read that together. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. It says this. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him take himself, or let him deny himself, excuse me, and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the words of Jesus right there this morning to us. He's saying, to follow me means that you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross, you're going to die, and you're going to actually forget about your own way and follow me. Now, to understand this again, I want to kind of pull us back a little bit to the previous passage. So go to verse 27. We're going to reread that and see, like, why would this person, Jesus, be so willing to call people to do this radical, um, radical reality of following him in such an intense way? It says in Mark 8, 27, that as the story of the gospel crescendos, Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi, and on his way he asked him, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell them, tell no one about him. So people are saying, who is Jesus? Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? And this is sort of the pre-question to the questions I've asked you because the reality is what's happening in this whole context is Jesus is trying to get them to realize that he is indeed the Christ. 
Okay, and we talked about this last week. Tucker showed us what the Christ means. He's the anointed one, the chosen one of God. He's the Messiah King, that the culmination of the entire biblical story from garden to fall to nation of Israel, right there with Jesus revealing who he is, that's the center, and then from that flows everything else until the early church and then throughout church history until Jesus comes back one day. We've hit the crescendo. Jesus is the Christ, the King the anointed one. But in this, we're seeing that actually uh, Peter has some misunderstanding of what this Christ figure is all about. Uh, Peter was an expectant Jew like many people in the first century, and Peter was hoping for a Messiah that would deliver them from the Romans, that they would throw off their bondage. And, and Peter uh, really had a political version of Jesus that uh, he, the, the Messiah would come as a king on a throne ruling the Jews and the world from Jerusalem, hoping that there would be this great deliverance. I kind of picture Peter this way in this passage, and, and forgive me if it's not right, but I picture him uh, almost like a political sloganeer saying things like, yes, we can, if you're on the left. Or maybe on the right saying, make Israel great again. Okay, either way, I've, I picture Peter as this guy just kind of wrapped up in exuberance, yes, for the Messiah, but for the Messiah in a wrong way. The Messiah who would do what he wanted to do. In fact, we see this throughout the Gospels when the, the disciples ask, like, hey, Lord, can we sit on your throne at the right hand and at the left? Can we be in power with you? And I don't know about you, but... I see ourselves in this as well. I see that we are prone to this very mistake as Christians, that we tend to, like the disciples, want Jesus to serve our purposes. And in fact, that's what Jesus says in the very next sentence in chapter 8, verse 31 to 33. As he begins to teach, it says uh, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus, very clearly in the context of this passage, is trying to show the disciples that he is a different kind of Messiah, King, Savior, not the one that they want. He's one who's going to have to die. First of all, they misinterpreted the Old Testament. Second of all, they misinterpreted what the Messiah would accomplish. Third, perhaps like us, they viewed themselves as the righteous people who were worthy of deliverance as Israelites. Maybe they had a bit of a victim stance in their bondage to Rome. And all I'm saying here is that Jesus reveals like, no, in fact, I need to suffer and die for salvation. Sin is that bad. This world is that broken that I'm going to have to suffer. That's what the Messiah is all about. It's very intrusive. It's interrupting the disciples' mindset and what they think life is all about. You see, even in that concept of the Messiah, but more than that, he's going to interrupt their lives with the passage we read at the beginning. And I, I know this might be redundant, but I'm going to read it again because we're so likely to misinterpret what it means to be a Christian in our context. And so I want to read it again. So go back to verse 34. I'm going to read it one more time. It says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the founder of Christianity, the person, the Messiah, defining out of his own identity the identity of all those who truly follow him. And he goes there right away. He says something very strange, very radical. I want to make sure we get it, that Jesus says that if you follow him, you need to strap on your electric chair. You need to actually put your head on the chopping block. You need to put a noose around your neck and be willing to die for him. Those aren't my words. I'm not just trying to be hard this morning. I'm just trying to show you that this is what Jesus himself said. It is defining about following him. You're going to have to, as Luke says, do this not just once, but continually as an ever, going, ever ongoing action of dying daily and taking up your cross daily to follow Jesus. It reminds me of uh, something that, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. I mean, he had a context where following Jesus meant something in the context of Nazi Germany. Here's what he said. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As, in we, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. And thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. And those are strong words. I mean, let's be honest, when's the last time you woke up in the morning, had your devotional over coffee, Instagrammed it, and said, man, I'm looking forward to really doing this today. I'm looking forward to understanding that when Christ has called me, he's come, called me to die. And, and there is a couple things about this context that I want to talk about in verse 34. It says that Jesus told his disciples, and he told everyone this. So two points as we continue in our, our road on this passage. First of all, he tells his disciples, he has to continue to break down to them what it's going to mean to follow him. And, and look, every Sunday we get this uh, kind of revival type setting, okay? This, that's the way I view these Sunday mornings. That's what I'm saying. As we're singing and worshiping and people are enjoying the presence of God and enjoying emotionally and spiritually what he's doing in our hearts and lives, it's like a revival setting. I mean, I don't know if you've heard, but there's revival happening in our country in pockets right now um, that people debate about, of course. But nonetheless, there's things happening where people are having a renewed experience of testifying of God's power, of repentance of sin, of realizing what life is all about, that it's all about Jesus. And those times are beautiful, right? The Calvary movement that this church was born out of was a time of revival in the 60s, 70s where the Jesus movement happened and people had an experience with God that was unique, that was a moment in time where then that just exploded all over the world. 
That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But clearly Jesus wants to do something with his disciples here. Peter just had a moment of revival. He said, you're the Christ. You're the son of living God. The Holy Spirit revealed that the Holy Spirit's working. And then he says, yes, but Peter, at the end of the day, I'm going to paraphrase what I think Jesus might be saying. The Christian life is a cross. It's not a carnival. The Christian life It's not just about these moments of awakening, though those are amazing, and I hope you've had one this morning. That's wonderful, but in between these moments that God sees fit to give in a unique way amongst generations, there's what? There's mundane faithfulness. There's obedience that looks like getting out of bed, coming to a church gathering, being fed the word of God, fighting your sin throughout the week, walking Uh, in obedience to Jesus, struggling in what some call the cruciform path, the path of the cross. And that's actually how, more than the epiphany moments, Christianity has been advanced throughout the world's history. It's been people planting hospitals and churches and universities and doing the hard work every single day of following Jesus and dying to themselves. So, if you're having a revival moment, praise God. That's good. We celebrate that. But the fruit and the effects of a revival is what does it happen, what happens in the long-term effect of all of it with faithfulness to the Lord. Now, the other thing I want to mention here as we, before I get into the next part of this passage is that Jesus, it says here, doesn't just tell his disciples, but he calls to everyone when he says this. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because I think it's important to say that Jesus didn't just grab Peter and say like, hey, guys, let me tell you what it means to follow you. It's going to be kind of hard. Don't want to really let that out because if I do, the PR campaign won't work and we won't be able to get a lot lot of followers. Jesus tells his disciples and then he tells everybody that's listening the exact same message of what it means to follow him. I appreciate that. Um, It's not the typical way that Jesus is presented in our age sometimes. He's presented as, hey, well, if you'd like to follow Jesus, let us get you a dog, let us get you some balloons, and let us help you feel really fluffy and good, and like, let's just come along, have a party, and then you can follow Jesus. Just tack Jesus on to the rest of your life, and you can feel good about yourself. That's not what he says. He tells everybody the good, bad news The hard news, the real news. In the same uh, way, Jesus presents himself in an upfront manner. Now, I um, appreciate that because, like you, I see many uh, social media ads that try to lure me in. I think they call it clickbait or something like that. You know, it's starting to try to lure you in to click on their advice so that you will download a PDF and then secretly somehow 1995 has gone out of your bank account. And it's continual, and to try to cancel that is really difficult. Or like Apple, when your iPhone updates its software, and it's like 35 pages, do you agree to this? Like, I don't know. I never check it, but I always press agree. I don't know what the terms and conditions are, and then I find out that they're selling my data all over the world to people I don't even know or have a connection with. So... This is actually good news for us in a generation like mine. Generation X was called Generation Sell because it's like, hey, we sell everybody on everything. And all I'll say is like, I like that Jesus is up front. He's not bait and switch. He's not trying to hide what it means to follow him. And nor should we as Christians. And so if you're here among us and you're not yet a believer, 
listen, following Jesus is really hard. It's not all sunshine and roses. It's not all unicorns. It's not all, it, listen, I'm just telling you up front, don't become a Christian if you want an easy life. But I will say this, what Jesus says in this passage in a blunt, but I think really super gracious way, is that he says, I'm not gonna move the goalpost on you, I'm gonna tell you up front, and I'm gonna give you reasons why it's actually worth following me than doing anything else with the rest of your life. So I want us as disciples to think about that a little bit more today, and I want those of you who are still examining the terms that Jesus sets before you to examine that too. So let me give you three things from this passage. First of all, Jesus gives this call, and the call is in verse 34, to deny yourself instead of trying to save yourself. Um, Jesus puts out a call that's hard, that's radical. Here's another reason we should appreciate that. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, this before. It's kind of mythical. I, I just want to be honest. I think this was maybe made up, but I'm, I'm going to share it anyway. Um, there was a famous ad that supposedly went out in the London newspaper many years ago by a guy named Ernest Shackleton. This is what he said. He said, men are wanted for a hazardous journey. You'll get small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return is doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I actually perk up at that a little bit. I mean, I get scared, but I, 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 that, that draws my heart in a little bit. And, and I think that that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving a call to say that there is a purpose in life that is worth your all. And, and again, the story goes that 900 people showed up to his house to answer that ad. I don't know if that's true, but I will say this, that so many of us are caught in the mundane of life over and over again without that purpose that we don't realize that God is calling us to something very intense but very good. And throughout history, all great leaders have called people to an allegiance to something that is bigger than themselves. Don't you actually want to live for something full of purpose and, and something that you have to align yourself with someone who will give you this type of purpose? That's what I'd say, first of all. Second, he says, deny yourself. Deny yourself. What does that mean? Does that mean to be personality-less? Does that mean to never do anything that you enjoy? What is Jesus talking about? These words have been interpreted and probably misinterpreted many times throughout history. What does it mean that Jesus says to deny yourself? Well, I think that what he's getting at here is, and what the word actually means is that he says you need to literally renounce you. You need to say no to you, no to you as the center, no to you as the point of life. But that is so, so hard in reality, isn't it? Isn't our entire culture built off of looking for a better me? Um, I got on last night and looked at the top audible books that are out there right now. I listen to audible books and um, at least five out of 10 were just self-help books, self-discovery books how you can know yourself better, live in your reality better, and succeed in life better. 
That's the culture in which we swim as uh, Americans in the Western culture that we live in. So that is, that is there. I, I know a few years ago there was an Apple Watch kind of ad that was like a better you. And like the guy just got cloned over and over again until he found himself. I don't know if you remember that ad, but it's like found the, found the best version of himself. We get it down to a science. We try to have the, with the science of self, figure out how my brain activity works, how my sleep works. We set ourselves up. We're just trying to do everything perfect to make ourselves better. We medicate ourselves. Like, what can I do like, with my anxiety and how can I get the right medication for that? What can I do with uh, fixing my birth order because I feel like that wasn't right? And so what can I do with my personality and just kind of fixing my tests in, 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 with Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or whatever it may be? We try to figure out ourselves in such a way that we can medicate ourselves by figuring ourselves out. I mean, I could probably divide this church if I said the Enneagram was good or if it was bad this morning, and people would just split down the middle. Some people think it's demonic. Some people think it's the best thing that God's provided for us to know ourselves better. I don't know, but what I will say is this, that we are obsessed with ourselves. In religion, in spirituality, we constantly try to do things really just to make ourselves feel better. Is it really a pursuit of God? We've been singing about this morning, or is it a pursuit of a better me? In all these ways, I would say we're trying to build an identity, find our happiness, express who we are, and this is our gospel. And Jesus says something radical. He says, no, deny yourself. That is not a message that we receive well. Now, by the way, this is not to say there's not value in personality tests. For example, I think it can be valuable to know, like, if you're an eight on the Enneagram like me, that you can potentially be a real jerk. I mean, that's, that's a bad thing. Um, but if I live into that, that would be a bad thing maybe, but I can actually say no to that. That's what Jesus is saying. So find out who you are. Find out what you can do, all the tests that you want. But in the end of the day, if it contradicts the gospel, you're going to have to say No. I won't be that person. I won't treat people like that. I won't have myself as the narrative center of my life. We do that because we're ultimately seeking a salvation and a happiness that we think we'll achieve by self-identity. One theologian said this in contradiction to that. He said, salvation is not some happy state to which we can lift ourselves by our own bootstraps after the contemplation of sufficiently good examples. It's an utterly new creation into which we are brought by our death in Jesus' death and our resurrection in his. It comes not out of our own efforts, however well-inspired or successfully pursued, but out of the shipwreck of all human effort whatsoever. Death and resurrection are the key to the whole mystery of our redemption. So Jesus says, the first thing you need to do to follow me is actually say, no, self, you can't please God. You can't achieve holiness. You can't do the things that God would even say to you. You can't even deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. You can't love others in a others-centric way. You can only love people in a self-centered way. So say no. I believe he then gets into three fours that clarify his logic here. So first of all, verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. 
Now, I love this just as a quick point to make sure that we understand that this is good news to us. Saying no to ourselves is good news because when was the last time you actually saved yourself by all your efforts to be what you wanted to be? Who of you have completely nailed it in marriage, life, business, every aspect of child raising, spirituality, or any other pursuit in life? Who's nailed it here? Please put your hand up. I want to meet you afterwards. We fail. So Jesus is actually in this giving us the freedom to accept that the grace of God, that God says, I will come to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus if you can just admit that you need me and yourself is not sufficient. Second point I want to talk about this morning is this, the cost. Verse 35 and 36. Jesus gives this call, makes it clear to deny yourself. That's what the call is. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? So here Jesus does what I would say is, in one sense, wisdom because we will either sacrifice ourselves in pursuit of ourselves or we will gain something. So you have to give up, Jesus is saying, your life to gain real life. This four is connected back to the call of discipleship and Jesus just continues what he's saying here. Here's the reality. Modeling our lives after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ will never be easy. But he says, I sacrifice myself for you. That's where I'm going, Peter. And now I'm calling you to do the same. And in doing so, you will actually find yourself. Um, There's many ways we could kind of illustrate this, but... I wanted to say that we tend to have this idea that we would die for Jesus one day. I don't know about you, but especially when I was younger, I thought certainly if it comes to it and I'm put to the test and I'm in a persecuted country, I will certainly die for Jesus. I felt that, I I believe that. We tend to hold up missionaries and people and examples in history and say like, yes, they're the ones we want to aspire to. I don't know if you remember, but we prayed for recently uh, Ryan and Annabelle, uh, MAF missionaries. And we've had among us for a while, some of you guys came on Friday night, uh, Jacob and Tara O'Brien, who are missionaries with MAF. We've had the opportunity to meet them and hear about their sacrifices. And I, I think serving as a missionary is actually a great privilege because it forces you to deny yourself and your cultural identity. And so it's actually a privilege. It's a help to you. Um, but we hold those people up. We say like, They're sacrificing. I could never do that. I want to be clear that Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what level of Christianity you think you're at. This is what it means to follow me. To intentionally take up a cross. To intentionally say I'm going to sacrifice. Ryan and Annabelle, he's in a jail in Mozambique. We're praying for him to be released. His wife is over here. Annabelle's over in uh, Nampa, staying there. We're praying for them, but the reality is they're experiencing the sacrifice of the cross they chose to take in serving people that way. But how do you connect that to your life? Because you are not in Mozambique. I'm not in Mozambique. Well, let me just give you, again, some uh, little kind of tests, little clues to see if we'll actually bear the cross, if we'll do what Jesus is saying here. 
Because, of course, every one of us as a Christian who's in this crowd this morning is going to say, yeah, I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow Jesus. Let me just test you a little bit. Would you die for Jesus? Well, if you won't miss cheering your favorite sports team on in order to gather with God's people, so well done this morning, by the way, um, and raise your hand to worship, then you probably won't die for Jesus. If you won't risk making friends with someone who has no friends at all instead of staying in your comfortable group, then you probably wouldn't die for Jesus. If you won't get out of bed to serve your wife or your husband or your family, then you probably wouldn't die for Jesus. If you won't cut back on your work hours to spend more time and money on ways uh, that would share the gospel with people, then you probably wouldn't die for him if it came to it. And if you wouldn't bring up Jesus in a conversation at a local coffee shop, a bar, a restaurant, or in the office, you probably wouldn't die for Jesus. Let's just be honest. Now, I'm not trying to get too far in your face in that. I'm just trying to help us to see that we can have a version of dying for Jesus and taking up our cross that sounds good because it's ethereal, and then the practical realities of our life are, are we actually intentionally saying, I'm going to pick up my cross and follow Jesus? John Henry Newman said it this way, the self-denial which is pleasing to Christ consists in little things. This is plain. For opportunity for great self-denials do not come every day. Thus, to take up the cross of Christ is no great action done once for all. It consists in the continual practice of small duties which are distasteful to us. Someone say dishes, right? Someone say diapers. You could say many things, small little distasteful things, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's a principle in his word. And so finally, we'll come to the last part because of time. Look at verse 37, verse 38 again. What I love about this is Jesus doesn't just say these things and try to get us to live a hard life. He gives us a motivation, a good news motivation. He tells us essentially to play the long game instead of seeking instant gratification. Verse 37 for what can a man give in return for his soul? Forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation. Of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And that implies that if you are not ashamed of him, you'll experience his glory for eternity. Play the long game. We talk about it, but do we do it? This is a very scintillating aspect to Jesus' call to discipleship. Jesus is actually okay with some motivation for yourself here. He's saying, let me do an accountant ledger with you. Add up all of the stuff in your life that you're pursuing for yourself. Okay, like just think about that. If done wrongly, even your family, your church, your uh, pursuits in life, your hobbies, your habits, all this could be stacked up here on one side. Um, your comforts, your pleasures, your sports, add that all up. And like the Apostle Paul says, add up the eternal weight of glory on the other side with Jesus. And the scale just falls. The scale falls. Jesus says, look, there is a crown coming to you. It's okay to have a theology of glory and of, of the crown. It's okay to say, yes, I need happiness. Yes, I need joy. But it, where does it come? 
Ultimately, it comes in Jesus, through Jesus, and on that final day when he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. You have to have the theology of the cross and the theology of the crown. The cross always comes before the crown. It's not reversed. It's not the other way. But there is a crown. There is a crown. And Jesus' call here is actually a gracious call to put down those things that aren't satisfying us anyway. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child that wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased. I know I am. I know that every day I make choices where I am not counting eternity. I'm counting the moment of pleasure that I'm experiencing. I know every day I am not in some way intentional to pick up a cross and sacrifice and live for somebody else's benefit and good because I want ease and comfort. I know every single day I build identities for myself and don't say no to them, but live in them instead of living in the plan of God for my life. In some way, small or big, this happens to us all. And so Jesus calls to us this morning and says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. What does that mean? Well, um, first of all, let's just go back to my question at the beginning, and I'll just ask you, are you happy this morning? Are you happy? And again, in context of all that we've said, are you happy with the lifestyle that you're living as a professed follower of Jesus Christ? And if you're not, maybe the answer is counterintuitive to what you thought it was. Maybe the answer, let me just try to apply it a little bit for you, maybe your answer is to do something I talk about all the time, which is just get into a community somewhere of some kind. Why is that? Because if you do that, you'll have to deny yourself. Other people have ideas about how you should do things, live life together, uh, make sacrifices, how gifts should be used. There will be some kind of rub. Iron sharpens iron and sparks fly. So that's one application for me in this text is that uh, Jesus' call to take up your cross and intentionally live for him is a call to live for other people. Get into some kind of a group. Uh, listen, let the Holy Spirit lead you. Here's some other examples. Um, just, I think, with our very individual culture, these are things where I see myself fighting against the way of Jesus. Um, try sometime, instead of just driving alone, call someone and say, hey, do you want to go shopping with me? Do you want to hang out with me and, and be together as Christian brothers or sisters while we do this activity? Find somebody that's marginalized in your community, like a foreigner of some kind, or if you're a foreigner, find one of these uh, nice, shiny white people that are here, and either way, find somebody different than you and actually invite them to a meal and go have a meal with them. It's baby steps. Fine, go watch the sports game, but invite somebody along who doesn't know Christ so that, and give them a ticket generously so that you can befriend them and, and share with them one day. Cut back your work hours so you can give more time to your neighborhood. 
work a little bit extra so you can give more money to the gospel. Whatever it is, these are just applications of like, hey, intentionally decide I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. I'll deny myself even that vacation so that I can go on that trip to serve other people or whatever it may be. Those are just some, let the Holy Spirit lead you to see how you should deny yourself and take up your cross. But I will finish with one last application, and that's this. Jesus mentions it in the passage, so I think I should focus on that one. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory. You know, honestly, in a culture like ours today, in a gracious, loving way, just raising your voice to say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, he's the way, the only truth, the only life, that he died on the cross for our sin because we weren't good enough uh, to please God, uh, and yet he came in his love and his grace and his mercy, he died for us. And I want to pass that on to you and say that you need to turn from your brokenness and sin and turn to Jesus, like raising your voice, believing that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, that's denying yourself because people don't want to hear it. That's taking up your cross. That's intentionally saying, I'm going to sacrifice my respect and my honor in that person's eyes because I'm going to share eternal truth with them in a loving way, whether they're ready for it quite yet or not. And this is the application Jesus says, and so I want to finish with that one, and it's the application that will also point us to communion right now. We're going to take communion. And what I didn't want you to hear, and if I did this wrongly this morning, I apologize. What I don't want you to hear is, hey, everybody, start getting serious for God. I want you to first hear Jesus was very serious about his mission for you. Jesus was so serious that he was willing to bleed, to be whipped, to be broken, to be bloodied because you needed him. You were not sufficient to save yourself. I pray that you'd realize that again today, that anything that you're called to do by God, to deny yourself, take your cross, and follow Jesus, anything we are called to do, it all flows out of the fact that he first did something for us. And so that's the first thing. The second thing, though, as you take communion and you consider Jesus, I also want you to consider that the emblems represent that a servant is not greater than a master. And this is the Christian life. There's more joy in it than you'll ever know if you don't take this up. But I'll tell you this, and some of you know it, that to deny yourself and to live sacrificially for others and to wait on God for eternal satisfaction and joy, it actually is the happiest life you could possibly live. So as we take that communion, just say, Lord, this is what I will do in response to your great love. Help me, fill me. Help me to be emblematic in this world of you by doing what you said and actually being a follower the way that you defined it.